somehow. Amen. There's enough swag in that choir. You even, well, all kind of swag in that choir. Let me just leave it there and not get in trouble right now. Amen. Amen. I, I want a hat like uh, Sister Portia, but I don't think that's what the Lord is calling me to. That is a banging hat that she had on. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a good day. It's good to be here with you this afternoon at Epiphany Fellowship. If we stand, to, let's stand together. And we're going to read today from Mark chapter 8, just a few verses, verses 34 through 38. We'll really be talking about verse 34. And uh, we'll use a few other verses along with that. But uh, let's look at the word of the Lord together. Mark chapter 8, 34 through 38. And I'll start reading. You read with me. And then as I fade out, just keep reading to the end of the verses. Let's read. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Amen. That's a packed passage, isn't it? There's a lot in those little verses. The message today, my title is An Invitation to True Discipleship. An Invitation to True Discipleship. Let me pray. Father God, we do thank you for this time, for this moment. We thank you for your word and we pray, O oh God, that anything that is in us that would be cluttering our mind or causing us to be distracted, anything that would be in our heart that would be hard and resisting the movement of the Spirit and the Word, Lord, anything that would keep us from an encounter with you in these moments, we pray that you would remove it from us, that we may give our attention wholly and completely to you, Speak to us what you want us to hear and glorify your name through this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. An invitation to true discipleship. We're living in some interesting times right now. Uh, politically and otherwise, um, there is a lot going on. And one of the things, a, a term that's been coined over the last few months, it's really something that's been going on probably as long as human beings have been communicating with one another, but I, I had never heard the phrase before that we're hearing now, and that phrase is fake news. Fake news, and, and the cousin of uh, that term, fake news, is alternative facts right? 
facts that actually didn't happen. And what is the definition of a fact is something that has happened, right? Or something that is true. So it's very weird. It's very upside down and inside out, depending on who you're listening to, who, where the fake news is coming from, changes, and all of those things. But it's clear that this is an issue that we're talking about and having to listen to. But listen, wherever you fall, politically or otherwise, um, there is a, a fake news that you really need to make sure that you don't listen to the fake news, but you get the right news. Yeah. That is on the nature of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Yeah. What is discipleship? And let me just say this before I go on. When we use the term being a disciple, biblically, that is the same as saying being a Christian. I know culturally and in many churches, it's not the same. Like, I'm just a Christian. I just come to church a little bit. I'm not really a disciple. Well, we need to make up our mind because Jesus doesn't discern between disciples and Christians. Either you're all the way in or you're not. And so as Jesus is sharing these words with uh, the people in uh, this chapter, uh, he is calling us to what true discipleship is. Listen, let me give you two, uh, uh, some fake news about discipleship. Two different views that aren't true. The first one is this, and this one I wish was true. Discipleship is the always glorious joyride to heaven where we are growing in Christ every day, always feeling the Holy Spirit's power flowing through every pore of our body all the time. Glory be to God. Man, I wish that was what discipleship was. I wish it was like that all the time. But if we'll be honest, the Bible doesn't back that up. Your experience doesn't back that up. There's nothing that backs up that. That's not what discipleship really is. There's some elements of that that are true, but some that are off base. Now, here's the other one that I'm glad is not what discipleship is, but this one is often more so embraced by conservative, Bible-believing churches. Here it is. Discipleship is the excruciating process whereby we are continually dying to self and experiencing the sorrows and afflictions of Jesus with the hope that we will surely enjoy his presence one day in heaven. Man, if that's it, I don't want to sign up. Now, there's a lot that's true in that statement, but, but there's a problem with it. Neither one of them understands the balance of what Christian discipleship is. So let me give my definition of discipleship. Discipleship is coming under the sanctifying power of God in such a way that everything that is not like him is being removed from our lives so that we might enjoy him fully. See, that's the process of discipleship. It's not something where we get the reward on the end. There is a fullness of reward, but it starts in the here and the now. But here's the reality. It's tough. So discipleship is both painful and glorious at the same time. God has designed, designed a discipleship to make you say ouch and wow at the same time. Yeah. Ouch, wow. Look at God. Y'all don't believe me? Okay. 
I want you to turn to your church neighbor right now. I do. I actually do want you to do this. And I want you to give them a high five in Jesus' name and tell them, ouch, wow. (laughs) If you understand discipleship, there's an ouch because it's hard. God is taking stuff out of you that you don't want to come out. It's deep in there. But there's also a wow. Because at the same time you're going through that painful process, he is revealing his glory, his love, his power, his care, his mercy, his grace, his wonder, his beauty to you at the same time. Ouch, but wow. That's discipleship. As we come to this passage in Mark chapter 8, it's a turning point in the gospel of Mark. The first seven chapters has been like a continuous move of God through Jesus as as Mark records what he does. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He proclaims the word. He feeds the thousands with a few uh, loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He's doing all this marvelous work. And in Mark's gospel, it moves from one scene to the next. And over and over again, it will say, and immediately Jesus did this. And then after it says that, and immediately he did that, it's a picture of Jesus going about and doing his work. That's one of the reasons why when I'm in discipleship with someone or someone talks to me, I'm always pointing them, read the gospel of Mark. You see Jesus on the move. You see him on the move. But the book changes a little bit in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, the verses right before the verses that we just read, it's the first of three passion predictions in Mark's gospel. A passion prediction is Jesus talking about what's about to happen to him. And so in the verses right before what we just read, Jesus talks to his disciples and he tells them that I'm about to go to Jerusalem. And when I go there, it's not going to go so well. The son of man has to suffer and to die. They weren't ready for that. They, they were hanging with Jesus, the, the winner. Right. Jesus was the one who got everything right. But now he's saying this and and Peter and the disciples are not ready for it. And so Peter says, man, uh, I rebuke you. Uh, This can't happen. He begins to rebuke Jesus. Not a good idea. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes Peter. They're not ready for this. So in all of these passion predictions in Mark's gospel, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and in chapter 10, what happens is Jesus reveals what's about to happen to him. The disciples don't get it at all. Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. Why do you have to go there and die? Man, we believe your Lord. you got all power. Die? Come on, man. And in each one of these, Jesus begins to talk to them about the meaning of true discipleship. So in chapter 9, he says to them, the first must be last. In chapter 10, he says, the greatest of all will be the servant. So we come to this passage in Mark chapter 8, and I have two basic points for you today. The first one we'll just take a few minutes on. The second will take the bulk of our time. But the first point is that discipleship is an open invitation. 
Discipleship is an open invitation. The second point is discipleship is a specific God-ordained path. So let's look at the first one. Discipleship is an open invitation. Verse 34 says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me. Stop right there. He says he not only calls his disciples, but he calls the whole crowd. You can hear my voice? Come on, come on, come on. Come here, come here. I want everyone to hear this. My invitation doesn't just go to these 12 men who've been following me. They've been through stuff. They've, been th they've seen me up close. No, but if you can hear me at all, my invitation goes out to you. So it goes out to the rich. It goes out to the poor. It goes out to uh, those who have life together and those who are broken and despised. It goes out, it's not a respecter of gender, it's not a respecter of position, it's not a respecter of ethnicity. God's call goes out through Jesus to anyone. He said, if anyone will come after me. See, the beautiful thing about this call to discipleship is that it is an open invitation. It's not restricted. He says, it's not only a call, but it's an invitation. It's Jesus' invitation to come to me, to follow me. You see, and if you say yes to this invitation, there's nothing and no one outside of you that can stop you. Wherever you come from, whatever the issues in your family of origin are, they can't stop you from coming to Jesus. Whatever your struggle with sin is, I can look through this room. I don't know everybody's struggle. I do know this. Everybody struggles. Everyone in this. I see a baby over there. Selfish little baby. Praise God. I love you guys. I'm just, I'm joking. But you find out real quick. People that don't believe uh, that, that, that the human beings are sinful have not had babies. I just, they can't. Because you find out real quick. They're selfish. Me, 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 right? Here's the reality. Uh, as, as we look at this. So this is an open invitation, but there's something specific about it as well. Jesus just doesn't say, you know, uh, to, to the crowd, come on, anybody just come over here. It's not come over here. It's come after me. He says, come after me. There's a direction. There's a place. There's a specificity to this thing. He says, if anyone will come after me, let, let me break it down this way. You're going to wonder where I'm going with this, but I'm going to bring it back together, okay? When I was a young man, particularly a very young man, I remember being in high school, I used to eat very large quantities of food. Like my family believed that I had a medical condition whereby my left leg was actually hollow. I was six foot two. I was uh, 140 pounds soaking wet. Like next to gangly in the encyclopedia was a picture of me. It was right there. I, I was skinny as a rail, but I ate so much food. I remember I used to go to basketball practice. There was a McDonald's on the way home from basketball practice. Back in the day, a hamburger, some of y'all who are over 50 know it's true, would cost about 30 cents for a hamburger or a cheeseburger. So I get like three or four hamburgers and cheeseburgers on the way home from basketball practice to go home for dinner. 
And then we'd have dinner. We'd have spaghetti dinner. And I would, all the time when we had spaghetti, I would have three heaping platefuls of spaghetti. Not those little plates. Not the cute plates. The big John's. Lots of sauce, lots of Parmesan cheese, all the garlic bread I could eat. I would eat all that food. Then I remember, you know, when I graduated from college and I got my first real job, I had a little money. And so I like to go to fine dining restaurants. You know, I was all about the fine dining. To me, here's how you would define fine dining. If the end of the restaurant ends in the word buffet... To me, that was fine dining. It could be hometown buffet. It could be country, old country buffet. It could be no country buffet. I didn't care. And then, oh, that's a good place to eat. And this is back in the 80s, you know. And so, uh, you know, I had my first job. I had a little money. So I didn't mind spending a lot of money on a good meal. So I could go to the buffet and it was like $6.79, which I thought, man, that's a lot of money to pay for a meal, but I'll do it. Here's the only problem with the buffet is I learned that you can't bring your Tupperware to a buffet. So whatever you're going to eat, whatever you're going to take out, you got to take out right here. So my thing was, okay, I'm going uh, to the buffet, but here's my strategy. For every dollar I paid, I need to eat at least a pound of food, right? So $6.79, you do the math, maybe a pound and a half. You know, I, I, need, I need to get my money's worth out of this buffet. That's just like going hog wild in the buffet. As much as I can eat, everything I can eat. You know what? After a while, I learned maybe that's not the best way to go. I learned, you know what? And it could have been the fact that I went in the buffet. I saw my picture there with a little red stripe through it. That might have been the thing that keyed me into this, but uh, I learned that that's not the best way to go. As a matter of fact, I can actually go somewhere. I still want to have enough food to eat. I'm not into a restaurant that has a little, you know, the, where the garnish is bigger than the meal. That's, that's, that's not my John, but I, w- I want the meal still to have some substance to it. But, but what I've learned over the years is I want something that's good. And sometimes you can go to a restaurant, you can ask your server, or you can ask the chef, what's really good here? And sometimes they'll actually tell you. You know, when someone says, oh, everything's great, I'm like, okay, I'm in the wrong place. But if they say, this is particularly good, and this is one of the specials tonight, and they describe it, I'm like, okay, that sounds really good. What I've learned in in my fine dining experiences is that buffet is not actually always the way to go. But finding something that truly is good is is what I'm looking for now. Listen, Jesus Christ is the master chef of the universe. He is the one who's able to say, this is what you need. This is the thing that will actually bring you life. You can't just go everywhere and take in everything. He gives you the path. So this open invitation is an invitation by Jesus and to go to Jesus. Let's look at the second part here. Discipleship is a specific God-ordained path. He uses three verbs in verse 34. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow me. Three verbs. All of those verbs are what we would call in Greek or in English imperatives. An imperative is uh, the voice of command. It's not a suggestion. You know, it might be, oh, it might be good maybe if you would deny yourself. I don't know. Hey, take up a cross perhaps. I don't know. No, it's not, it's not him like saying, this might be a good idea. It's a command. He says, deny, take up, and follow. Deny, take up, and follow. Look uh, in the verses we already talked. Well, look at verse 35 with me for a moment. Verse 35, Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Listen, he says this right behind Peter's rebuking of Jesus when Jesus says, this road's about to get really hard. You see, Peter uh, was following the winner, Jesus Christ. He was with, he was winning all the time. He's like, man, wherever he goes, stuff happens and it's good and he's powerful and I'm one of his closest dudes. I like this. But Jesus said, not going to be like this all the time. I'm about to go and I'm about to suffer and I'm about to die and you're going to be with me. And Peter says, no, I want to be a winner, Jesus, not a loser. And so Peter's upset. He rebukes him, but Jesus says these words, whoever would save his life will lose it. He said, you can't live your life by what gives you the best advantage all the time. You can't plan your life by what it is that will, will, will give me the most comfort. He says, if you plan and live your life that way, if you save your life, he said, it's not sustainable in the kingdom of God. You will lose it. Not you might at one point have an issue. No, he said you'll lose it. He didn't say when. He didn't say how. But he did say you will lose it. So what does that mean? It means how do I plan my life? How do I work out my life if I'm denying myself? How do I make a career choice? How do I decide where to live? How do I decide how to spend my time day by day? How do I decide how to navigate relationships? If all of those things are done to curry my own advantage, he says, you are living to save your life and it's not going to work. It can't work. Alternatively, he says, if you lose your life, You'll save it. And he says here, not just lose your life, but lose your life, what? For my sake and for the sake of the gospel. Uh, Mark says, for the sake of the gospel. Luke, in his account of this, doesn't say, and for the sake of a gospel. What is the difference there? I think he's just saying that if you're going to live your life for the sake of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that comes with a cost. Yeah. It's hard. You're not going to be everybody's favorite all the time. It's going to be difficult. You embrace that reality. Losing your life doesn't mean going about as a miserable person all the time. It doesn't mean that second definition of discipleship. But it does mean that you give everything over to, to God and to seek that your life might glorify him in your decisions and in all of your interactions. Let's look at the word for a second that the scripture uses for deny. I want to do, 
we have the slide for that, yes, that has the definition of that word. Eparnizesto is the word. Say that to your neighbor. No, don't try that right now. The word means to utterly deny or renounce. Look at this next part. This word deny means to live without regard for one's own advantage or convenience. Now look, that is the exact opposite of the way we've learned to do life. Whether you've been in the church since you're a baby or, or wherever you've been, that's not the way we learn to do life. The way we learn to do life is to look at how can this work for my advantage? How can this work for my convenience? But this word to deny self means I'm not living that way. Denying self is not normal to anyone. We don't want to deny self. You want to wake up in the morning, and I'm not saying you can't have your favorite cup of coffee. Don't hear me saying that. But no one works up, wakes up and, say, and wants a certain cup of coffee and says, no, instead of that, I'm going to drink a cup of mud because I'm denying myself today. You're not going to do that, and neither should you do that. Depending on the mud, might have good minerals, might be healthy for you, but probably not. Don't drink mud. But, but what he's saying here is you, you embrace the reality of God's purpose even when it's detrimental to you and your own comfort or well-being. If this is God's purpose, it's not about my adva advantage or gain. And so you embrace that. Here's a reality for all of us. We, because of our sin nature, need to deny ourselves because you think that you are the center of the universe. Someone says, no, I don't. I know I'm not the center of the universe. Pastor Larry, I don't even want to be the center of the universe. That's too big. It's too much. But can I just be the center of my universe? God says, no. Not going to allow it. He says, I am the Lord thy God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, not even the God of self. We think all these other things. Here's the, the big God, the sneaky God, the, the God that we really serve very often is the God of self. What's going to work for me? How can I make this work for my favor? Denying self means willfully submitting my whole life to God for his glory. Not only does he say deny self, but then he says, and take up his cross. Take up your cross. This is the path of cross-bearing. We hear that word, and uh, when we hear, take up your cross, for most of us, for me, that doesn't have some adverse uh, effect in my life. It doesn't because we've heard it so much. We've heard it so much. But I want you to put yourself in the place of a first-century Jewish person living in Palestine where the Roman government was oppressive against the Jews. One historian estimated that in the lifetime of Jesus, there were 30,000 crucifixions. So it wasn't an uncommon practice. It was something that the Romans used in order to strike fear into anyone who would dare to rise up against them. 
And so they devised this most painful, most shameful, most difficult uh, form of, of death. And so that not only was the person crucified shamed, but anyone who associated with that person took on that same shame. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, they're not thinking about this. They're not thinking about a piece of jewelry. A cross, they didn't understand a cross as something that you wear. They understood a cross as something that wears you. And so Jesus says, take up your cross. It's a hard word. Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There's something about this life of taking up a cross. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying that we are to be those who are not afraid to take up a cross. What does that mean? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? I can't tell you exactly in your life. You've got to work that thing out, but let me give you a couple of things just to understand it better. First of all, how can I determine if I'm embracing my cross? Number one, ask this question. Does this serve the purpose of glorifying God? Does this serve the purpose of glorifying God? Look, We're not looking for hardship and trouble for hardship's sake. We're not looking to be martyrs because I just want to embrace the hardest thing I can embrace. No, you may be embracing a hard thing, but it's not your cross if it doesn't have the purpose of glorifying God. Secondly, does this call me to a loss of earthly comfort? Am I taking an L somewhere in here? Look, cross... And comfort don't go together. If it's always the easy way, then you can know for a certainty that you're not taking up your cross. The last thing here is, do mature people in the Christian community affirm this as a part of your call? Look, some people are doing or attempting some things and it's just not wise. You're not ready for that. It's not time for that. Why are you doing it? I'm taking up my cross. That's not your cross. You're not ready for that yet. Listen to the Christian community. Be a part and be a part of the vital Christian community. Listen, Mark is writing this scripture at a time where biblical Christianity was already being mocked in the first century. It wasn't long from the writing of this scripture that persecution came all out against the church under the emperor Nero in Rome. But already Christians were being marginalized in every way. The same for Peter's writings. The same in the book of Hebrews. We just finished 2 Corinthians. We saw the way that true Christianity was being mocked. And that is true in our day as well. Taking up your cross is standing up in such a way that though you may be mocked, you're standing for Christ. You're standing for Christ. Look at verse 38. It's a hard verse. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. That's a hard verse, y'all. Charles Spurgeon, the great British 
preacher once said these words. He said, it's very, it is a very ill omen to hear a wicked world clap its hands and shout, well done to the Christian man. What is he saying? If everyone in the world that doesn't know Christ says, you're doing the right thing all the time, you're probably not doing the right thing. You probably haven't taken up your cross. You're probably not denying yourself. You're probably not living by this book. It's difficult. It's tough. You're going to take on shame somewhere in this life. The question is, whose shame will you take on? Now, most of the stories I tell about myself, kind of on purpose, put me in a, a little bit of a bad light. That's because most of the stories about me can do that. But I'm going to tell a story uh, that is different, and it's about standing up for Jesus. This happened to me over 20 years ago. I was on my job. I was working for a social service agency that had a Christian name, and Jesus was in their mission statement. And they began a new program. I'm not going to go into detail about what it was, but it was clearly a program that, uh, that, that they were undertaking that was against in every way what the Word of God teaches. So I was deeply troubled by this. I'm a part of this organization. Jesus is in our mission statement. We're supposed to be representing him somehow. The, the organization had long since left actually being a Christian organization. But I took that to my boss and I said, man, I'm struggling with this. We're doing this. The word of God says this. He says, word of God, I mean, no, the, the research says we should do it this way. I said, no, no, no. Uh, can I talk to your boss? He said, fine. So I talked to my boss's boss, and then my boss's boss's boss, and then I went, I bossed all the way up. <laughs> and every boss said the same thing. Like, you're tripping. Forget about it. Forget about it. <laughs> so every month, we had a staff meeting where all the staff that was in the Philadelphia area came together, about 120, 130 people. And at those staff meetings, any member of the staff could stand up and share something from their heart or something that they wanted to say to the organization. So I was struggling. I talked to other Christians in the organization. They said, yeah, yeah, Larry, we agreed. That's wrong. I said, will you write your name down next to mine? They're like, no, no, I don't think so. No one would stand up. No one would write their name down. I'm struggling with this. We're supposed to be representing Jesus. This doesn't represent Jesus. And so I knew I had to speak at that gathering, but I was scared to death, y'all. I'm not going to act like, yeah, I stood up and I said, thus saith the Lord. I was scared to death. I wrote out everything I was going to say on a yellow pad of paper. It was three pages. I don't remember what it all was, but I remember the last line of it. I said, we need to either stop this program immediately or we need to take Jesus out of our mission statement because he doesn't have anything to do with this. I'd love to tell you they dropped the program, everything changed the next day. Y'all know that's not true. It put me in a bad place in a lot of ways. They didn't fire me. Matter of fact, what I recognized and realized, I got more respect after that than I ever got before. But it made it a very uncomfortable place to be. I was here on Wednesday night. Many of you were here and people talked about the struggle on their jobs because you want your paycheck. You need your paycheck. And yet you want to be true to God. How do you work that out? 
Use wisdom in doing that. I'm not saying this is what you do. I'm not saying do what I did. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, along with Jesus, that if you are ashamed of Jesus, he says, when I come back, I'm going to be ashamed of you. I would rather take the heat now than to find out one day that Jesus Christ is ashamed of me. Because I live my life cowering behind some political correctness on one side or another. I did whatever I did to make sure I was in good with people, but I didn't fear God. Listen, here's a reality as, as believers. Wherever you stand on political matters, hold some of that a little bit loosely. But if, if you align perfectly with any of the political camps that I know, then somewhere you're letting go of this. Somewhere you've been more aligned with a political view than you are with a scriptural view because it doesn't fit into anything. Look, I know I'm going to talk just for a second about a very difficult issue, one of the hot-button issues, pro-life or abortion. People in this room have been touched by that. Some of you may know that you're here because your mother made a courageous decision. Uh, she had people in her ear but decided to give life, and that's why you're here. Others here may have actually had abortions, or you know others that have. Here's the beauty and the wonder of God. No matter where you are on that spectrum, no matter what your sin issue has been, every single person in this room has major sin issues that God has forgiven you of. So if it's abortion, that's just another one. God can forgive you of that too. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. But listen, uh, it's critical to stand up for the unborn, but being pro-life must be much more than just that. So we not only stand for the unborn, but we stand for the poor born. We not only care for those who are in utero, but we care for those who are in prison, who are made in the image and likeness of God. Pro-life commitment cares for the fatherless as much as it cares for the fetus. We care for the marginalized and the ostracized as much as we care for the fertilized. A pro-life commitment is, is understanding that people are made in the image and likeness of God, and we do whatever we can to promote the grace of God in the lives of people. Yeah. A cross-bearing life is not seeking to appease a political ideology, but to please and honor the living God. We bear our cross. You may be mocked and ridiculed in different ways, but you will be one who stands up for the glory of God. Final point today. Not only is this a path of self-denial and a path of, of cross-bearing, but it is a path of Jesus following. This is the core of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and do what? Follow me. Follow me. You see... Sometimes we can't follow him because we haven't denied anything. So we're taking on so many things. We're not ready to bear a cross. So we're walking in our own way. We cannot follow him. 
You got too much stuff that you're dealing with. But he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Following Jesus means that he must always be in your field of vision. Is Jesus in your field of vision? Disciples are those who follow Jesus. My question to you today is, do you follow Jesus? That's an easy one. I'm at Epiphany. It's 1.30 in the afternoon. Pastor Larry won't keep preaching. Of course, he won't stop preaching. Of course, I'm following Jesus. But listen, don't answer it too, too quick. Because, look, you, you, you can't really be following someone unless you're keeping them in your view at all times. Let me use this illustration. I remember, I'm going to bring you way back, like before the dawn of civilization, before there were GPSs. There were no Google Maps. In the beginning, there was no internet or cell phone. And the Lord says, and you said it's formless and void, it's terrible. No, there was no GPS, but you and your family were making a trip and going to another state, perhaps a few states over. And so one driver was going to be the lead driver. Everyone has to follow him. Now, especially if you have three or four cars, there was no map quest. Most of the people in the other cars, they didn't even want to look at a map. I'm not looking at a map. I don't know how to look at maps. I'm just going to follow, I'm just going to follow him. If you've ever been in one of those things, you know that that's an extremely dangerous way to travel because I need to keep my eyes on him and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to do that. Some crazy driving going on. But you keep that person in your view because if you lose them, you're in trouble. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1 or chapter 12, uh, the author says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run the race with perseverance. The ra- run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Listen to this, verse 2. He says, Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. He says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. The invitation to follow Jesus is the heart of what it means to be a believer. God says, walk in my steps. Jesus says, follow after me. But to do that, you've got to see where he's going. Listen, you're on that trip, and if you lost sight of the leader, you may have thought, I know he was going to turn here. He probably turned right, so you turn right. But the reality is they turn left. And so you're going full bore in that direction, thinking that you're following, but what's actually happening is you're getting farther away. You're getting farther away. What does it mean for us? What do we do to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Three things, very briefly. Number one, it means reading Scripture becomes your unbreakable habit. Reading Scripture becomes your unbreakable habit. It is something that you just don't do every now and again, but it becomes interwoven as a part of your lifestyle. If if you have been a Christian very long, and as you grow older, you will unfortunately probably know many people who started out well and enthusiastically on, in their walk with Jesus. I know people who jumped higher 
sang louder, raised their hands more, spoke in more tongues, and, and in every way embodied what it was to be excited, enthusiastic about Jesus, and today they are not following him at all. Many of them are extremely antagonistic towards the faith. Listen, enthusiasm won't keep you. It won't. You've got to know what you believe and why you believe it. And if you're not in this word, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Don't listen. Don't live off of somebody else's report that they saw Jesus there. If you're just living off podcasts and sermons on Sundays and you're not in this word yourself, you're just saying, oh, they told me Jesus is there. Have you seen him yourself? Stay in the word. Secondly, prayer becomes your constant companion. Prayer isn't something that I do for a few minutes in the morning or right before I take a meal. Prayer becomes your alternate language. It becomes your second language. It's something that you do because you know you need to stay connected and your flesh is always trying to disconnect from God. I'm going to tell on myself right now because every day throughout the day, there are times when my mind begins to fix on things that I know don't please God. And if I'm not careful, I'll let it go way further than it ever should. And so what I'm learning and what I'm growing in is when that begins to happen, I begin to pray. It may be out loud. It may be under my breath. But I know right now I need to call on the name of Jesus or I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble if I don't do that. Following Jesus means keeping him right in your view. When sin begins to urge you and it begins to speak to you in sweet tones and say, come over here. You say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, strengthen me to walk with you today. You begin to pray to God to ask him to keep you when you can't keep yourself. The last thing is the glory of God becomes your guiding light. How do you make decisions? How do you decide which way to go? What will glorify God the most? Someone told me after the first service, someone I respect highly, the reason that churches don't do well at making disciples is that pastors don't do this. They weren't talking about epiphany in a bad way. They're saying, by and large, pastors don't embrace a life that denies self, that takes up the cross, and that says my whole trajectory of life is about following Jesus wherever he goes. He's not going to lead you in a way that makes you look good all the time. There's going to be hard places to go. Look at verse 38 again for just a moment. Look at this closely with me. I want to read it to you. Verse 38, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Look at this. In this anointed and artistic generation. Is that what it says? Oh, gosh, I got that wrong. Oh, I see. It says, whoever's ashamed of me in this creative and ingenious generation. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. He said, whoever is ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation. That's what he says. One of the problems with 
so many people who go by the name Christian is that we have a mindset and a worldview that's uncritical about the things in our culture. Listen, if that's the case, if by and large you go, you take your cues from the flow of the culture, you won't be following Jesus. Not for long. You won't. Uncritically embracing a fallen culture inevitably leads to falling away from Jesus. The rubric for culture is right here. What does the word of God have to say about it? I want to know because I want to please God. There are many things that I can, uh, from culture that I can understand, that I can enjoy, but there's some things i got to say no. Do I like it? Yes. I like it a lot. It's very enticing. But when I look at this and I look at that, I say, I can't go there. I can't go there. Guys, can I say to you, don't be afraid to be called weird or strange because of things that you don't do that other guys say, oh, I have no problem watching this or listening to that. That's no problem for me. I have to say, you know what? It is a problem for me. I'm weak. I can't take it. I can't take it. Stay away. So here it goes. The invitation to discipleship put in the simplest way I possibly can is this. Here's the invitation. Follow Jesus anywhere, everywhere, all the time. That's it. Let me close. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is warning his disciples about his coming back. And as he warns them, he talks about Noah, that in the days of Noah, people were marrying and giving in marriage. And what he's saying is that before this flood came and destroyed the world, people were going about their business just like they normally do every day. They were just going about their stuff. And so in the middle of this sermon that Jesus is giving as he's instructing his disciples, he uses three words. And he says these three words. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Many of you know the story from the Bible. Lot was Abraham's uh, nephew, and Lot went with Abraham when he went out of Ur of the Chaldeans into the promised land. But Abraham grew wealthy. Lot did pretty well himself. Now there was, they needed to split up because there wasn't enough pasture land for all of their flocks in their herds, so they needed to go in different directions. Abraham said, Whatever, wherever you want to go, Lot, you, you make the first pick. Even though I'm older, I'm the uncle, I could pick the best land, but you pick where you want to go. Abraham picks a certain place to, going towards the east, and he goes there. Abraham goes the other way. Lot ends up settling in the city of Sodom, which begins to grow in wickedness, and God is not happy with Sodom. And eventually God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And so Lot is there, and Abraham says, can you get my boy out of there? Get his family out of there. Will you do that? And God says, yes, I'll do it. And so God visits uh, 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 Lot and his wife in Sodom and their girls, and he, he tells them what he's about to do, and he urges them to leave Sodom. They argue. They don't want to leave. But eventually they say, okay, we got to leave because this place is about to be destroyed. The Lord God is going to destroy it. And when they tell them that, they also tell them, whatever you do when you leave, don't look back. 
Don't look back. He says, don't look back. And, and the Bible says that it was so hard for them to leave that the angels actually had to take them by the hand to get them out. Angel takes you by the hand, says, whatever you do, don't look back. But you know the story that Lot's wife, and they're moving toward the place that God has designed for their freedom. Uh, apart from this place that where their soul, the Bible says Lot's soul was vexed living in Sodom, but he's leading him to a place of freedom in Christ. The angel has taken them by the hand, but you know the story, Lot's wife looks back. The Bible says when she looked back, immediately she turned into a pillar of salt. God's judgment was quick and it was sure and it was final. Why am I talking about that in a sermon about discipleship from the New Testament? Well, because I want to ask you this question. Are you moving forward with your hand in God's hand, but continually looking back at the same time? Is that you? See, there's some people who are here today, even though it's an afternoon service, uh, who said, man, I just wanted to come and I, like I heard the choir was singing today and it's going to be nice and some of the kids are going to be preaching. I didn't feel like I needed to preach after they, these guys preached, but, but I just wanted to come to church and just have a nice church time. What, it doesn't take all that. Pastor Larry, just turn it down a little bit. Let me get communion and let me get out of here. Maybe some people, and that's where you're at, that's okay, we'll pray for you. And there may be some that this is just a message that is encouraging you and how God has already been encouraging you. That's good. I hope it's that for many people. But some of you might just be woke enough in the spirit, if I can use that term, to know that God is calling you even today to more thorough and complete discipleship, to fully embrace what it means in your life to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus on a consistent basis. I know we're a little bit late, but I just want to take a couple minutes. If that is you today, you know that God has been speaking to you through this message, and you need to make some different decisions now. I just want you to stand up right where you're at. You don't have to come up here but just stand up right where you're at. If you know that God is calling you through this message to a, 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 a new season in your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ, where you need to deny self, take up your cross and follow after him, then do that. Is there anyone else? I want to pray for whoever that is. I believe God is speaking to some people right now. And you know that God is calling you you don't want to be that person at the end that Jesus says, man, you were ashamed of me. You wouldn't speak up. You wouldn't stand up. Is there anyone else? Just one more minute. Okay. Let me pray as we close our service today. Father God, we're so grateful and thankful, Lord, that you do hold us by the hand Forgive us for every time we've turned around to look back. You know our weakness. You know our bad habits. You know our sin issues. But we know that you are God above all. That there is none that can stop your hand. That you are the great and mighty one. And we give you glory and praise. Lord, I pray for every one of my brothers and my sisters that has uh, stood up now. 
Lord God, that you would give them the courage, the strength, the encouragement, that you would uh, work so in their lives that they would go hard for you. Not halfway in, but all the way in. Not sticking a toe in, but going head first. And Lord, they would do that with the Christian community surrounding them with wisdom and with grace and with power. And Lord, our confidence is not that we get it all right, but that you are our God. And the one who called us to take up a cross took up a cross for us first and died on that old rugged cross on Calvary's hill. And because of that, we have life in you. Lord, strengthen your people and glorify your name. We pray it in Jesus' name.